after beginning our discussion of some general information about the 12 and 12 and its intended purpose and its themes of helping the person who continues to struggle in sobriety, information about the instincts. And the third thing that I'm gleaning from it so far, so there's a lot of script for being a sponsor, things you can say as a sponsor at different parts of carrying the message. You know, our sponsors say there's a lot more reference to sponsor in the 12 and 12 as well. So continuing with the first goal of 12-step recovery, identify the problem. Um, I think one of the most important things that I experienced 12 years into recovery on learning the basic information about the disease the science of the disease of addiction, so to speak. The result was it gave meaning to my struggle. And at some point it says we're a baffled lot. And one of the things that the truth about the problem gave me once I studied it and was shown it is that I was no longer baffled about why I drank and used the way I did or why I wasn't able to get or stay happy on my own when I wasn't drinking or using. And those were deep mysteries for me. And uh, I don't know where I picked it up, but um, I'm a guy that's got some shame. And it's easy for me to throw the baby out with the bathwater, the way I threw the 12 and 12 out with its non-intended use in the fellowship. And I needed to start loving myself. And the truth about the problem, which is the essence of step one information, helped me realize that I'm not a bad person who needs to get good. I'm a good person who needs to get well. And guess what I thought I was? A bad person who needed to get good. And I had plenty of support and those around me, and confirming that. Don't you care about us? I guess not. Give me another beer. So step one gave meaning to my struggle. It helped me realize that I was a sick person, a good person who needed to get well, not a bad person who needed to get good. And the simple elements of that instruction started with learning that the big book was a textbook to be studied from the beginning and the beginning of the book was a doctor's opinion because Dr. Silkworth is the person who gave Bill Wilson and then therefore the fellowship our understanding of addictive illness. And um, the two elements constantly referred to in the book, defining the problem as we struggle when we get to the fellowship, are basically the illness of the mind and the illness of the body. I didn't know anything about these things for the first 12 years of my recovery. I knew that I was powerless. I told my stories of powerlessness. I had tapes that I got royalties from through Hazelden's lecture series that was published for treatment programs, tapes, and they were entertaining stories about my powerlessness and some element of witness that I was no longer living in that mire, living with that car that had ruptured organic garbage bags in the back of it, closed up in the summertime in Minnesota all day, that I could barely... Uh, I'd have to drive with my head out the window to get the stench out. And it didn't get cleaned up until a woman asked to borrow my car. I said, well, sure. And uh, <laughs> she came back. She says, Fred, what is wrong with your car? I threw that stuff away, by the way, you know, just waiting to be taken. But once I was given the context of the illness of the body and the illness of the mind, 
Guess which sentence I found it in the big book? The very first one. Forward to the first edition. Page Roman numeral 13. We of Alcoholics Anonymous are more than 100 men and women. One of six politically correct statements in the big book. Enjoy it. Bask in it. And tolerate the rest. It wasn't meant to be offensive. It's the language of the 30s. And we, the fellowship, will never change that. You know, I'd say, I used to say, well, GSO will never change that. Well, GSO is only going to change it if we tell them to. And we're not going to tell them to do that. I don't think the aggregate voice. We of Alcoholics Anonymous are more than 100 men and women who have recovered from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body. Boom. Today, I get the whole book in the first sentence. When I read that out of context earlier on, it was just an interesting statement. It had no meaning for me. And now, reading the big book, this is exciting for me every time I pick it up, as watching the movie The Wizard of Oz, which I've seen probably, I don't know, 20, 25 times in my life, How many of you have seen The Wizard of Oz more than five times? Yeah. And there are probably some PhDs in here, and a thesis was on The Wizard of Oz. But why that movie is so rich, even having now knowing it so well, is that I get the whole movie in every scene. Good screenplays do that. Dorothy falls into the pigsty. Farmhand jumps in, hauls her out. That in and of itself, the first time I watched the movie, was a little bit of drama. But it has not a comparison to what I know is really going on. Who's the farmhand who jumps in after her? The lion, Bert Lahr. And what's he like after he pulls her out of the pigsty? He needs to be defibrillated, it looks like. What do we know is his story later on? He has the belief that he doesn't have courage. What did he demonstrate in that first scene? Courage. He cares for her. The real tran- All these people are good people. Dorothy and, the, and her three buddies, they're not people who are transformed in this movie. Who's the real transformation in that movie? Pay no attention to that man behind the curtain. I am the great and wonderful Oz. <clears throat> what a great symbol of my alcoholism that is for me. That front that I put on, that smoke, that those smoke and mirrors. I mean, God, I was a, so image conscious and and uh, demanding that my instincts be met, which turns out to be our our greatest uh, sin. And when I use the word sin, <clears throat> I'm using an ancient meaning of the word that's an archery term that means off the mark. I couldn't relate to the word sin in in the Anglican church. It didn't speak to me. It didn't have a context. Now that ancient meaning of the word has a context for me. Living off the mark. What's the mark? I'm a spiritual being having a human experience. What's off the mark? Thinking I'm a human being having a spirit seeking a spiritual experience. So This, the next, and there are lots of um, um, references to this illness of the body and the mind, especially now that I'm looking for them, just like I'm seeing all these themes in the 12 and 12. On page 7 in Bill's story, Bill's recounting his having first learned about the problem of addiction from Dr. Silkworth. He says, best of all, this is his first visit to Towns Hospital in the summer of 1933. Bill's sobriety date, December 12, 1934. So Bill learns what his problem is about a year and a half before he has his spiritual experience, which is always an important reminder for me of, um, you know, how effective self-knowledge alone is for getting sober. Best of all, I met a kind doctor who said that though certainly selfish and foolish, I had been seriously ill bodily and mentally. And this information gave meaning to Bill's struggle because Bill was a baffled guy. 
It relieved me somewhat to learn that in alcoholics, the will is amazingly weakened when it comes to combating liquor, though it often remains strong in other respects. My incredible behavior in the face of a desperate desire to stop was explained. This had impact on Bill. Understanding myself now, I fared forth in high hope. For three or four months, the goose hung high. I, want, I went to town regularly and even made a little money. Surely this was the answer of self-knowledge. Well, if Garth and Wayne had written the big book, the next sentence would be, not. <laughs> but surely it was not, for the frightful day came when I drank once more. Um, these constant references now become... When I take a newcomer through the big book, I don't, I don't go page by page. I go principle by principle. And I would do with them what I'm doing today, which is starting to point out all these different locations that this same information is repeated. And the summary that I use is the big book teaches us five or six things hundreds of times, not five or six hundred things. And for ADD types like myself, my office is messy. No, I don't know where everything is. Um, but I remember the old phrase for attention deficit disorder, absent-minded professor. Absent, deficit, minded, attention, the, in, the intellectual. Um, Lost my string. Five or six things, hundreds of times, not five or six hundred things. And two of the six things the big book teaches me hundreds of times is that I have an illness of the body and an illness of the mind. Boy, it's nice having faith. I don't have to stand up here and die a thousand deaths and be embarrassed because I forgot my string. That have all you wonderful people here paying a modicum of attention that you could help me get back where I need to get. No one gets hurt. Um, page 24, bottom of the page, big book. When this, when this sort of thinking, illness of the mind, is established in an individual with alcoholic tendencies, illness of the body, they have probably placed themselves beyond human aid. Hopeless condition. It's getting a little more subtle when this sort of thinking is fully established in an individual with alcoholic tendencies. They have probably placed themselves beyond human aid. Page 24, last paragraph. We were in a position where life was becoming impossible, and if we had passed into the region from which there is no return through human aid, we had but two alternatives. One was to go on to the bitter end, blotting out the consciousness of our intolerable situation as best we could. Step one, living in the problem. Or two, the other, to accept spiritual help. Step two. So the book starts to kind of hint at the spiritual solution, step two, that flows from the information about the problem. And so the title of the second segment this morning is The Foundation of Hope. The foundation of hope is still step one. The hopeless condition. Because essentially what step one does is it points out to me how ineffective I have been to manage my drinking at the level of the illness of the body and the level of the illness of the mind. I asked the question earlier, how many of you have tried to manage how much control you're using? How'd that work out for you? The illness of the body. How many of you have sworn off alcohol and drugs, saying, I'll never do that again, and used again? Welcome to the wonderful mind of the illness, wonderful problem of the illness of the mind. So the illness of the body, as Silkworth described it at length, is a physical allergy to alcohol. And that didn't have a lot of meaning for me because I had allergies as a kid. 
almost a, a, a anaphylactic shock once when they gave me too much serum in, a, in an allergy test. They gave me a little scratch test. And, and, uh, um, so I knew it, but I, I never sneezed or had a runny nose when I drank beer. So the idea of being allergic to beer didn't have any meaning for me. But Joe and Charlie, they go to the big, the big a dictionary, simple dictionary, and they look up the word allergy and they find the definition an abnormal reaction to a common substance. So now I'm plugging in, I have an abnormal reaction to the common substance of alcohol. And that abnormal reaction is explained in the doctor's opinion as the triggering of the phenomena of craving, a cycle of craving. And once I start drinking, I will continue to drink because each drink triggers a desire for more. And, and Joe teaches it by going, one, one drink gives me one craving, gives me two drinks, gives me two cravings, gives me three drinks, gives me three cravings. And then it makes perfect sense why I ordered one beer when I went into the Green Lantern Tavern in Walla Walla, Washington at 5 o'clock after a hard day's work as a hod carrier. But at 2 in the morning, I had six beers on the counter and a 12-pack between my feet. When I went in, I just wanted one beer. But once I started, then my body craved more. And uh, the story, my, my wife's story as a heroin addict, the phenomena of craving plays itself out as a little different. However, the result is exactly the same. Once she started using, with the idea of just chipping around her recreationally for the weekend, she was not able to predict when she was going to stop and usually got strung out. It's wonderful and challenging to have my wife here as I uh, give these seminars. Um, and if I don't represent your story accurately at all, Paige, you can tell people about it afterwards. Um, but this, the conclusion that we can draw from the illness of the body is we can't use safely. Now, I used to say we can't use. And wanting to be a teacher that can have some meaning for as, mo as many people as possible, I knew there would be people out there who would say, what do you mean I can't use? I used last week. I could use again tonight if I want to. But the real accuracy of this statement is that I can't use safely because of the triggering of the cycle of craving. And the illness of the mind is a completely different phenomenon because it isn't tied to using. It's tied to the mental states that precede my using. And these are two large areas defining powerlessness that the illness of the body and the illness of the mind provide. The illness of the mind means I'm powerless over alcohol after I start drinking because of the triggering of the cycle of craving. Did I say illness of the mind? I meant illness of the body. The illness of the body means I'm powerless over alcohol after I start drinking. And the illness of the mind means that I'm powerless over alcohol before I start drinking. And so I love to ask the question, when's the only time I'm powerless over alcohol? And actually the answer is not all the time. The answer is before and after I use. Recovery occurs in the interval between before and after. Now, what's a popular word for the interval between before and after? Now. And I think our forefathers and foremothers knew that SAA types probably wouldn't relate to, you know, cutting the Zen beans in the now. So they made the now what? Today. The interval between before and after, that's my sanctity, is in today. A very viable interval between before, illness of the mind covers that, and after, illness of the body covers that. So this mind problem 
was characterized as a mental obsession. And again, Joe and Charlie went to the big book and defined the word obsession that said, one idea that forces out all other ideas. If you're obsessed with something, it moves in and takes over. Stalkers get obsessed with the objects of their stalking. And it's a pretty serious situation when somebody puts all their life energy into pursuing somebody. And the obsession that insidiously only hits us at certain times is the idea that somehow, someday, we will control and enjoy our drinking or using. Um, this is made pretty clear on page 30 in the first paragraph. Most of us have been unwilling to admit we were real alcoholics. And again, every natural instinct cries out against admitting that. I mean, there's lots of reasons we don't get this. And one of them is the biggest element inside of us, this constellation of human instincts. No person likes to think that they are bodily and mentally different from their fellows. And then it goes on to talk about the great obsession of every abnormal drinker, the persistence of this illusion, next paragraph, the delusion. Lots of different references. And by the way, that chapter, chapter three, more about alcoholism, is entirely dedicated to the illness of the mind. Four stories in there, Man of 30, Jim, Jay Walker, and Fred, each demonstrating this moment when they couldn't see the truth about their relationship with drugs and alcohol. So a simple way of saying this is the illness of the mind is believing a lie about the illness of the body. And the insidious part about this is that we only experience that lie at certain times. I tell the story of having 90 days of not drinking, and I, I was counting, wasn't an alcoholic, wasn't going to meetings, white knuckle, had a horrible drunk out of town, very expensive. I said, I'm never going to drink again. When I drink, I get into trouble. I experienced the truth of my alcoholism. Didn't know anything about the illness of the body, but I was describing a personal example of that symptom. So for 90 days, I put the plug in the jug. And actually, it was a pretty nice 90 days. I, um, my language cleaned up. My room cleaned up. My laundry cleaned up. I was taking care of business, getting a good night's sleep, waking up in the morning without a hangover, which was a joy for me the first two years of recovery. I, I got this joyous start to every day, the first two years of my recovery, simply waking up in the morning and not having a hangover simply waking up in the morning and knowing where I was. Simple gifts, context. So for 90 days, I saw the truth about the illness of the body. Then I fell victim to a belief that I could celebrate how great my life had gotten not drinking by having a couple of beers with friends back down there at that Green Lantern Tavern in Walla Walla, Washington. So... For 90 days, I saw the truth. Then I believed a lie. And I acted on the lie. And as Joe and Charlie say, when you act on a lie, you run into the truth. When you act on the lie about the illness of the body, you run into the truth about the illness of the body. And I had those beers to celebrate how great my life had gotten with friends. And guess what happened? I couldn't use safely. I just experienced that one more time. And I was a lot worse off that Monday morning I woke up from that Sunday drunk than I was 90 days before because I'd actually tasted a better life. So bottom of page 43, almost with apology at the end of this chapter, more about alcoholism, all of these references to the illness of the mind. Talk about a context. If you take a little highlighter and go through this chapter highlighting everything that references the illness of the mind, you'll come up with 20 or 30 different References or many of them repeated. So at the end of the chapter, it says once more. It's kind of like, just one, don't hit me, once more. We're going to tell you this once more. The alcoholic at certain times has no effective 
mental defense against the first drink. This gives meaning to people's struggles. This helps people not shame themselves for having used again after promising their families that they'd never do it again. They see it as the symptom of the disease, not one more example of their moral ineptitude. Then again, as I mentioned, the book hints at the spiritual solution early on. Except in a few rare cases, neither they nor any other human being can provide such a defense. Their defense must come from a higher power. So the book is starting where I am, and that's what I love about this book. It doesn't lead with the spiritual solution because Bill learned that six months after he got back from Akron in New York. He was out there pounding the pavement, working with all sorts of these drunks, telling them about this spiritual experience. And then he went to Dr. Silkworth and said, I'm sober, but nobody, I haven't helped one person. And Dr. Silkworth said, maybe you ought to start by talking about alcoholism and its hopelessness the way I did with you to get their attention. And the 12 and 12 is all about willingness. And my belief is that willingness flows from the truth about step one. The gift of despair is willingness. And I got that gift of despair the moment that doctor helped me see how miserable my life had been. And I went from leave me alone to what do I do next? And this information could not be more important. Now on page 23, interestingly enough, we graduate from an illness of the body to an illness of the mind. And the idea that, okay, we lose control when we drink, so drinking again becomes the real problem. I can know that I lose control when I drink, but when I drink again, that's what creates that cycle of craving. So it says, therefore... The main problem of the alcoholic centers in their mind rather than in their body. And this is a graduation kind of what I do with sponsees that I'm taking through the work, is that we, we get the idea of understanding the physical allergy down. We get the idea of understanding the mental obsession. But then we get the idea that our real problem is up here because I'm always going to have the illness of the body. I, I know perfectly well that if I were to celebrate this seminar tomorrow with a couple of beers, some Vermont lager or something, uh, I'd have the same result as I did many, many decades ago. Not many, many decades, many, many years ago. Once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic. The illness of the body does not go away. The real problem centers in our mind. Now, the conclusion that we can draw from the illness of the mind as we can't use safely was from the conclusion we could draw from the illness of the body is that we can't quit or can't not do it again. Now, the illness of the body means we're powerless over alcohol after we use. The illness of the mind means we're powerless over before we use. This is a full-time condition in its active phase. The dilemma is that I have a body that can't take alcohol and a mind that can't leave it alone. This gives meaning to my struggle today. It's the foundation of my recovery because I realize, essentially, I have very few options given the truth about the illness of the body and the, tr- and the truth about the illness of the mind. Page 44 continues this repetition about the illness of the body and the illness of the mind and this kind of hinting at the spiritual solution. First paragraph of page 44, we agnostics. If, when you honestly want to, you find you cannot quit entirely, that would be the illness of the mind, or if when drinking 
you have little control over the amount you take, illness of the, then you're probably an alcoholic. Pretty straightforward. Now listen to the caution in this language. If, when you honestly want to, you find you cannot quit entirely, or if, when drinking, you have little control over the amount you take, you are probably an alcoholic. If that be the case, you may be suffering from an illness which only a spiritual experience will conquer. The book is very gentle with us as newcomers. And some I learned here a few years ago, they, they call this the junk trap. You know, the illness is the illness of the body and the illness of the mind. But here it says if you have the illness of the mind or if you have the illness of the body. It'll catch the junk on just one of them. Because if they admit to one, they're probably not going to admit to the other, right? Little little early junk trap. If that be the case, you may be suffering from an illness which only a spiritual experience will conquer. So they're not leading. They're not telling us about the spiritual solution. They're not leading with it. Bill learned that you couldn't do that. It didn't work. What they're leading with is the truth about what's wrong with us which has immense appeal, immense appeal. I, uh, I give a basic lecture to the patient population at Hazelden on a regular basis, and it is a joy to stand up there and talk about these simple elements and see people relate to them. Absolute joy. It gives meaning to their struggle. It helps them not moralize this condition that we're so good at doing on our own. So, one of the subtler references to the illness of the spirit that's even in that quote on page 7 from Bill's story that I didn't highlight when we went through it, but remember the sentence that said, Best of all, I met a kind doctor who said that though certainly selfish and foolish, I had been seriously ill bodily and mentally. What's the reference to the spiritual malady in that sentence? Certainly selfish and foolish. a little reminiscent of the language that they're using about one of the reasons the 12 and 12 emphasizes having to deal with being selfish and foolish. A very apt description of untreated alcoholism. Comments or questions? Yes. The question has to do with this appearing to be a twofold disease, illness of the body and the illness of the mind, and yet we hear often that it's a threefold disease. And my take on all of this is that ultimately, for my full understanding of the problem, I learn that it is a threefold disease. But that isn't revealed and named until pages 60 to 64. Um, and <clears throat> pages 60 to 64 are a wonderful little essay on self-centeredness, over-reliance on self. And when I understand that self is essentially this constellation of human instincts, it even has more meaning, and we're going to bring a broader and deeper understanding to even those pages of pages 60 to 64, you know, where it, it uses that language of <clears throat> selfishness, self-centeredness, that we think is the root of our trouble, driven by a hundred forms of fear, self-delusion, self-seeking. We step on the toes of others and they, and they retaliate. I mean, you know, it's like, ew, what a, what a horrible person. And uh, it ain't, that ain't true, folks. I mean, that's powerful language. But in a slightly different context, it's describing this third dimension of our illness. And um, in the last paragraph on page 64, after five lines down from the top, when it says our liquor was but a symptom, in the last paragraph, it says, resentment is the number one offender. It destroys more alcoholics than anything else. From it stem all forms of spiritual disease. For we have not only been mentally, can't quit, and physically, can't use. We have been spiritually sick. 
The spiritual malady is this over-reliance on self that it's been talking about since page 60 when it starts out by saying the first requirement is that we be convinced that any life run on self-will can hardly be a success. And if you think your life run on your will can be a success, you're a great candidate for step three. Actually, step one. I mean, I didn't mean to talk that way. Um, that is one of the prep phrases that I use with sponsees. Uh, Joe H. used to use the, uh, what I learned from Joe H. was turning each statement in the big book into a personal question. Very powerful. Because my illness is reading the book right along with me. And, uh, you know, I'll read the bedevilments on page 52. Um, these are the symptoms of untreated alcoholism. We were having trouble with personal relationships. We couldn't control our emotional nature. We were a prey to misery and depression. We couldn't make a living. We had a feeling of uselessness. We were full of fear. We were unhappy. We couldn't seem to be of real help to other people. And I'd say, oh, those poor bastards. I certainly hope they get help. But if I read that, am I having trouble with personal relationships? Can I not control my emotional nature? Am I a prey to misery and depression? Can I not make a living? Do I have a feeling of uselessness? Am I full of fear? Am I unhappy? Can I not seem to be of real help to other people? It brings it home. Really helps me know kind of what my state of affairs is. So when I'm doing a getting ready for the to do the third step prayer with a, a newcomer, I'll say, are you convinced that your life run on your will can hardly be a success? And if they're not, then we go back and and kind of look at the the problem part again. Now the reason that the book doesn't disclose that this is a three pronged illness, twelve and twelve says a double edged sword <clears throat> in Step one, basic for the newcomer right here, early in the program, is that how many of you, when you first reached out for help as an addict or an alcoholic, called a crisis line and said, you got to help me, I'm way too over-reliant on self? <laughs> I don't see any hands. What gets our attention in addiction isn't what needs our attention for recovery. What gets our attention is the manifestation of this illness at the level of the body and the mind. I got the crap kicked out of me by alcohol for a long time. And my hangovers, there's no way to compare it, but I don't think they could have been any worse. Every day. And sometimes today, I think those years of, of getting up in the midst of those hangovers or just throwing in the towel for the day um, has allowed me to live with imperfections in my life way too long in sobriety. Now, that's one lesson I don't think I need to bring into sobriety, my ability to tolerate things when they're not right. So it... In my belief, we're declared spiritually sick on page 64. But it's only after we've been very carefully given the foundation for getting that not only do I have a body that can't take alcohol safely and a mind that can't leave it alone, I have a spiritual condition characterized by over-reliance on self. That means on my own. I can't do anything about it. And this is the third nail in the lid of the coffin of this hopeless condition. A body that can't take it, a mind that can't leave it alone, and a spiritual condition that means on my own, I can't change. And the can't change is, is in the big book, 11 lines up from the bottom of page 62, when it says, neither could we reduce our self-centeredness much by wishing or trying on our own power. I really believe that. 
because I could see in my life that Monday was always my epiphany day. Monday was the day that I was going to get my act together. Monday was the day that I was going to quit smoking, clean up my room, do the laundry, quit drinking. And boy, on my own, did I do well by about 10.30. And then I did so well, like I would quit smoking every Monday morning. And by 10.30 in the morning, I'd been so productive in my self crusade that I would have to call somebody and tell them how well I was doing. And then, of course, have a cigarette while I was on the phone. So the insidious part about the illness of the mind is that it only happens at certain times, and we're not going to be able to predict when that's going to happen. Jim, on page 36, in his illness of the mind, says that the illness of the mind came to him suddenly, vaguely, and with reassurance. That's a very effective offensive weapon. comes at you suddenly, vaguely, and with reassurance. Like a stealth bomber. Is that the B-2? <laughs> Seen them flying around Manhattan. Can't hear them that well. Can't see them that well. They're un invisible to radar. And ask Saddam Hussein in the 91 campaign when his radar installation started blowing up suddenly. Vaguely, where, how come they're, who put, who put bombs in those things? With reassurance, there's nothing on the radar. That's how subtle a foe the illness of the mind is. So, I knew I was going to lose my string that time. The insidiousness of the illness of the spirit is not unlike the insidiousness of the illness of the mind because it only happens at certain times. The illness of the spirit, I can, you know, it says neither could we reduce our self-centeredness much. Well, what, what does that imply? That I can do it a little. Therefore, I'm convinced that I have that power. So I work at the Dan Anderson Renewal Center uh, on the Hazelin Foundation campus in Minnesota, and I've been with Hazelin for um, 30 years. And um, <clears throat> one of our, we want to do one of these advertising, the Dan Anderson Renewal Center, D-A-R-C, you know, come see the light in the dark. Um, but everybody who comes across the threshold of that wonderful building, it's a retreat center for rest and renewal. Everybody who comes across that uh, threshold isn't suffering <clears throat> from this illness at the level of the body or the mind. What level are they suffering? The level of the spirit. The frustration that we feel when we're too much living our lives in the context of being in the world, taking care of business on our own. The Dan Anderson Renewal Center is there for the same reason that 12 and 12 was written. This deeper spiritual malady that we run into once we get through what got our attention. But what got our attention isn't what needs our attention. And that only comes as we get this information in this sequence. <clears throat> the hinted at spiritual solution at Every one of those points, if that be the case, you may be suffering from an illness which only a spiritual experience will conquer, um, is essentially two elements. One, the problem defines the solution. Step one defines step two. The information in step two is essentially that the solution is spiritual and its source is already a part of who we are. Two key elements that I teach of what I glean from the book about step two in the sequence of information and action described in the Roman numerals in the first 103 pages of the big book is that the solution is spiritual and its source is already a part of who I am. This is suspect information for the newcomer who hates themselves. God's in me. 
uh, you don't know me. But it's information that they may get some intellectual grasp of. But what they're going to get a lot more of it of is witnessing your spiritual fitness. Step one and step two are taught every time a newcomer goes to the meeting and they hear an old-timer sharing what it was like, what happened, and what it's like now. They identify with us at the level of the problem, and they witness us at the level of the solution. There's probably no more powerful early step one and two experience. You don't even have to show them a book. Get them to some open meetings to identify with the speaker. Boy, that guy was sicker than I was. But to witness them at the level of the solution. So in my book, so to speak, step one and step two are inextricable. In my book, you you can't really have step two without step one. And again, I refer to what Joe McQuaney taught in in this ultimate, exquisitely simple reference. He said, the summary of the steps each exist by themselves upon the wall. And as it says on page 98, each taken separately can bring much benefit and relief. And in some ways, the, the, 12, the summary of the 12 steps up on the wall, the kind of steps that I practiced for the first 12 years, we'd go to a step four meeting, I'd look up on the wall, made a, first, made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves, and I'd ruminate on the meaning of those words for me, and I would get some benefit from it. I would get much benefit and relief from that. But what I wasn't getting was this unshakable foundation for life, which is the truth about step one. So Joe's phrase that I absolutely love is, Each step in the program of action steps causes the next step. So in other words, what I'm saying in all of this problem defines the solution, step one delivers us to step two, is that I will not get step two until I get step one. Now, I can get step one at a lot of different levels. A beginning understanding of step one gives me a beginning understanding of step two. And I'm still plumbing the depths of my disease, especially the spiritual malady. Page 17 introduces us to the book's essential statement that there are two sources of power. One is a loving fellowship and the other is the program of action. And the reason there's still just one God, one power, what does it say, but there is one power, that one is God, may you find him now, is that the two sources of power, two sources for the solution referenced on page 17, still have to do with the fact that the spiritual solution is a part of each of us. We of Alcoholics Anonymous know thousands of men and women who were just once as hopeless as Bill. And when you read this, in the, when you read chapter two in the context of chapter one, and, and you, you graph Bill's declining life, you know, he says things got bad for quite a while, then they got really bad. And I survived that for another five years. Then the bottom really fell out. And you, you see the decline of his life. And then when you, you're hit with this statement, we of Alcoholics Anonymous know thousands of men and women who were just once just as hopeless as Bill. It's a very powerful moment for me if I'm reading the second chapter in the context of the first chapter. Because Bill was had quite a story. Nearly all have recovered. They have solved the drink problem. 
We are average Americans. All sections of this country and many of its occupations are represented, as well as many political, economic, social, and religious backgrounds. These are the things that distinguish us among us, distinguish us from each other. And, and the breadth of, uh, you know, where people were born, what religious practices they've been taught, uh, what they do, socioeconomic, it's, it's vast. Um, however, we are people who normally would not mix, but there exists among us a fellowship or friendliness and an understanding which is indescribably wonderful. A fellowship, a friendliness, and an understanding which is indescribably wonderful. And near uh, the end of that paragraph, it says, the feeling of having shared in a common peril is one element in the powerful cement which binds us. And that's what brings the newcomer in, the feeling of having shared in a common peril. That's the attraction early on. Boy, these people were major drug users too. These people were major alcoholics too. But that in itself would have never held us together as we are now joined. The tremendous fact for every one of us is that we have discovered a common solution. So this simple element shows me that the fellowship loves me and supports me. The program of action changes me. Because I've been told throughout this process of learning about the illness of the body and the illness of the mind that I have a problem beyond human aid. I have a problem. The fellowship can't fix me. My sponsor can't fix me. I have a belief that this is what's wrong with me. I have a body that can't take it, a mind that can't leave it alone, and a spiritual condition that on my own I can't do anything about it. In other words, I'm, I'm really pretty done in. And I, you know, it was a pretty powerful experience to live that. It was a powerful experience to learn that that was what was wrong with me. And today I don't live in fear of this. I live in deep respect of it. I have a deep respect for the progressive chronic fatal disease that I got. The one progressive chronic and fatal disease that would allow me to live a healthy and rich life. Very ironic the one thing that would have gotten my attention because I was so good at, uh, you know, private logic, magical thinking. Uh, I had it all figured out in my own little soap opera of what was going on. But other people can't fix me. Any Al-Anons in here? Fixing others? How's that working out for you? You know, they drive themselves to the gates of insanity, um, taking on us. Two kinds of people in the world, project managers and projects. <laughs> and that's why there's Al-Anon and AA. Al-Anon's for the project managers and AA's for the projects. So we have a way out on which we can absolutely agree and upon which we can join in brotherly and harmonious action. This is the great news this book carries to those who suffer from alcoholism. So this idea that the problem defines the solution, step one defines step two, comes at me with these simple pieces of information, starting with the elements that explain why I was suffering, then telling me that the solution is spiritual because the solution is always hinted at as being spiritual before I'm told and declared on page 64 to be spiritually sick. On page 55 is the seminal information about AA's spiritual model. And on page 55 it says, Actually, we were fooling ourselves, for deep down in, every man, woman, and child is the fundamental idea of God. It may be obscured by calamity, pomp, and worship of other things, which take on a whole new meaning once we start looking at the instincts demanding our instincts be met in the world. But in some form or other, it is there. The last sentence um, near the end of that paragraph, we found the great reality. And one of the things the big book does is that it capitalizes references to the spiritual solution. 
And again, I, I, the book says I get to use whatever phrase I want. Uh, 47 says, when therefore we speak to you of God, we mean your own conception of God. This applies too to other spiritual expressions which you find in this book. So when I'm working with a new sponsee who's got a thing about God, I just point out this, this little translator, that whenever they talk about God, I get to substitute whatever's meaningful for me. And I know there are those in the program who would say, you're fooling yourself, Fred, it's really God, but I'll just go back to page 47. And what I'm comfortable with is spiritual path. So when it says God in the book, it's I say spiritual path. We found... Uh, deep down in every man, woman, and child is the spiritual path. We found the great reality. Let's say, back on page 55, we found the great reality deep down within us. In the last analysis, it is only there that he may be found. It was so with us. Pretty unequivocal in terms of what is the source of the spiritual solution in AA 12-step recovery. It is a spiritual element that's already a part of who we are. And I think this is kind of the heart and soul of, uh, for me, the essence of this spiritual solution. Now, you'll notice in the big book that there's no reference to page step one. There's no reference to step one, and there's no reference to step two. The first reference to a step is on page 60, and it's always italicized. Page 64, step four. Uh, it, every action step is italicized. There is no reference to step one in the big book, um, first, hundred and, first 103 pages, and no reference uh, to step two specifically. It does say to fully concede to our innermost selves was the first step of recovery, but that isn't talking about step one. Because step one and step two were essentially information about the problem and the solution that set us up to then do some first action in step three, which is simply a decision to seek the solution talked about in step two, which solves the problem talked about in step one. And this brings home that, that very powerful essence of how the program of action steps are constructed. Each step delivers us to the next step. Understanding the problem in step one delivers me to understanding the solution in step two. Understanding the solution in step two delivers me to understanding the decision in three. And so I always find it interesting when people say, well, you know, I'm, I'm really struggling on my fourth step. And if the truth is that each step delivers us to the next step, what step are they probably really struggling with? Three. And if you can say they're struggling with three, what step are they probably really struggling with? And if they're struggling with two, what step are they probably really struggling with? One. They've lost the context of the spiritual solution. They have assumed through some complacency, through some um, misunderstanding of having good days now, that, that's predi- that, that, that other problem is long gone. Okay. Um, so for me, every time I look at how this program is set up, the foundation of it all is step one, and I never apologize for spending a lot of time on step one as I have done this morning. Because I think, as Joe said, the quality of my getting the truth about what's wrong with me will then create the dimension. If I understand that dimension, can't use, can't quit on my own. I'll do this dance all day, I'm sure. Thank you. Um, Then I have a context of what I can do. And the truth about step one is essentially that every possible arena for me to address the elements of addiction on my own does not exist. And I've tried them all. I've tried to control my using. Oh, that'll work out for me. I've tried to quit altogether. Oh, that'll work out for me. And I've tried to get or stay happy on my own when I wasn't drinking or using. How'd that work out for me? 
two and a half hours every Monday morning. I got my self-imposed epiphany. So, we're told that we need a spiritual solution long before we're told why. We're told why on page 64, which exposes the third element of the truth about step one that I was not only mentally and physically ill, I was spiritually sick. And we're good for a while? Okay. And um, this idea of coming to understand that I was spiritually sick, as declared on page 64, long before I took my first drink, is going to be a large topic of what we're going to talk about this, after, uh, this afternoon. Um, I talked about being shy, self-conscious, full of fear. Those are symptoms of spiritual malady. Those are symptoms of over-reliant on self. And when I look back upon my life, I learned what the word unmanageability meant in stages. I first learned what it meant in the second half of the summary, step one when it says that our lives have become unmanageable. And when I went to St. John's Treatment Center in St. Paul, I looked up on the wall and I saw that. It said, we admitted we were powerless over alcohol, dash, that our lives have become unmanageable. And I couldn't have agreed more with the summary of the step. Didn't get into the details of it till later. But my life was hugely unmanageable, related directly to my drinking. Then five years into recovery, I started bumping into... Procrastination was one of the untreated elements that continued to dog my life after I got sober, putting things off. I haven't come too far. I have to say that with Paige here in that particular area. Um, but it was kind of amazing for me to experience continued unmanageability in recovery. In other words, I think I was qualifying for getting my nose into the 12 and 12 even back then. I went to a therapist who asked me a brilliant question, just as brilliant as the uh, doctor in the emergency room who asked me, when have you tried to kill yourself before? This therapist asked me, what happens when you get all caught up in life? Again, an open-ended, assumptive question. And when I thought about it, what happens when I get all caught up in life? I thought, I start worrying about dying. I couldn't be happy. When I got happy... Then the fear set in. My emotional security was tenuous. And when things were right in the material world, when I was solid with the thank you notes and the presents and, and all of that stuff, then my emotional security kicked in and something, something was going to happen. And when I look back then at the fact that I when I got happy or could be just really kind of delighted, uh, I worried about dying, then I realized that that had been something I learned a long time before. One of the examples of that is when I was 10 years old, my mother announced to me that a, guy in the, a kid in the neighborhood had died from leukemia and that I should be very careful every night when I went to bed to check out the inside of my thighs for black and blue marks because that could mean I had leukemia. Now, I'm an oversensitive, full of fear, self-conscious, shy guy to start with. And today, when I think back of the impact that must have had on me, I go, well, thanks, Mom. <laughs> so guess what I did? You know, I, I, I wet the bed, too, so I couldn't have water after 6 o'clock. Delicate child all around here. <laughs> and so I learned how to drink from a toothbrush. My dishonesty was rampant early on. And I figured just getting that, actually a toothbrush will hold quite a bit of water uh, if you fill it a hundred times. But so after I got my drink from my toothbrush, I'd check out the inside of my thighs and being full of fear, guess what I saw? Thousands of deaths from leukemia, little black and blue marks all over my leg. So I was a kid 
who, for a variety of reasons, largely my oversensitivity, did not have a clear sense of emotional security. And I'm talking about that because I want to tie this to what we're going to concentrate on when we come back after lunch, which is investigating the meaning of our will and our lives. And I find it very interesting that in Joe McQuaney's treatment manual, counselor's manual for recovery dynamics, that the instincts are laid out in the chapter on step three. They're referenced in the chapter on step three in the 12 and 12. They're really brought home in, in, in step four. But the heart and soul of understanding for a newcomer what we're turning over is this constellation of human instincts. Uh, and it has brought, as I've said, so much meaning to my life to understand. And again, I need to do things in a kind of a shameless way. And, and um, what I understand about me is, is simply that my character defects are my God-given, perfectly necessary and right instincts exceeding their proper function. So even character defects now we're going to investigate this afternoon aren't bad things that need to get good. They're good things that need to get well. Have a great lunch. See you at 1 o'clock. <laughs>